Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm your co-host Reggie Rucker and we're back with episode 5 of this season where we are highlighting frontline stories in the fight against monopoly power by talking with people all over the country who are actively engaging in building more equitable, thriving local economies. I'm here with my co-host Luke Gannon. Say what's up Luke. Hey what's up Reggie. How's it going? So Luke I've been thinking about the way this season has taken shape so far. We started with a conversation about dollar stores, which led to a conversation about the local grocery stores that are being threatened by these giant corporate chains, which led to a conversation about the local farms and then the independent fisheries that are being threatened by deep pocketed private equity investors. And the sequence started to remind me of, do you remember that old nursery rhyme of the old lady who swallowed a fly and then she ended up like swallowing a dog to chase the cat, to chase the mouse, to chase the something, to chase the fly. Do you remember that? Uh, you know, it's been a long time. Hold up, let me look it up real quick. So so yeah, so look it up real quick. But that's what this reminds me of. It's this story of these corporate interests that are swallowing up these pieces of the food chain from the fishing docks to the farms to the grocery stores bit by bit. And today's episode brings us to the end of this chain, or really the beginning of the loop if we build our communities and economy correctly. And that's with composting. In this episode, we are diving into the story of how private equity investment is threatening the sustainability and really limiting the potential of community-scaled composters, which have so many benefits for our local communities. So to get into it, throw it back over to you, Luke. Wow, all right, that is a very apt metaphor. After the lady eats the fly, then the spider, then the bird, and all the way to eating the cow, the lady dies. She has simply consumed too much. For all of those interested in teaching your children a little bit about private equity swallowing up the whole market, check out this nursery rhyme. But today, we are joined by three community-scaled composters who started their own small-scale composting program, Cuatro Vientos. Let's meet them. My name is Raquel Nunez, and I'm from Cuatro Vientos, and I'm the owner and founder of the composting project there. And we're out in Alpine, California, which is East San Diego County. My name is Iriani Lopez Hernandez, and I am part of the Cuatro Vientos team. I am the site operator. I'm Aiden Laguerre. I am also part of Cuatro Vientos, and I am the lead volunteer slash gardener. Raquel bought land just before the pandemic and ultimately founded Cuatro Vientos in 2022. But the beginning of their story can be traced back to a TEDx talk when Raquel was in grad school. When I was in grad school, we had these TEDx talks. And so I went to one of them and Farmscape out of LA was there. And I don't know if you know about them, but from what I remember, it's like the grandson of one of the orange juice companies in Florida or whatever. And like, so he comes from like this corporate farming background and somehow he ends up in LA and he has this initiative where he's trying to get people to farm their front yards in LA to help like with food shortage and you know, all this stuff. And so then I was really inspired by that. And I took it back to my house in San Diego and I always wanted to farm my front yard in my urban neighborhood. And then one of our colleagues, well, she's a friend too, not just a colleague, but she's also part of this same grant um, over at Madre Tierra. They have a farm in Escondido, which is North County, San Diego. She started hosting different workshops. So like seed swaps. And then one year she had this whole like rotations where you could sign up for different conferencing. 
even though I wasn't really a gardener or anything yet, I went to like an intro to biodynamic farming and like there was like an intro to composting. And so I, little by little, I try to start getting going at my house um, in the city. For work work, I'm an educator. I'm a consultant. And I work with school districts across the country. And so I'm gone a lot. So with the pandemic, we weren't traveling. So I got to stay at home finally and like try to put some of the stuff that I had learned into practice. And it's always also been a dream of mine to own a ranch. My grandma had a little ranch out in um, the Imperial Valley, which is like still in California, but on the way to Arizona. And then I had family in Arizona who had like little ranches or whatever. So I always wanted a ranch. Raquel always dreamed of having a ranch. And Aiden, the lead volunteer gardener, had experience and knowledge from his childhood and work life to bring to Cuatro Vientos. I grew up rural and like composting was just something we did and we grew a lot of our own food because there's food deserts like in the city and rural. You'd think that with all these farms around like there'd be accessible produce but there really isn't. So I grew up doing that and I moved down to the city for high school and it was it's not as accessible to like grow your own food. Like there isn't really space unless you're lucky enough to have a yard. So I kind of stopped doing that for a while. And then I went to school for sustainable agriculture, which got me back into the practices. And I practice composting on my own. And then I work in habitat restoration. So I work with a lot of native plants. When the pandemic started, um, I was approached by a local nonprofit in National City, which is adjacent to San Diego, to lead a community garden for them. It was like transforming this place that was completely overgrown with invasive weeds and trash, all this stuff. So we incorporated like restoration and bioremediation, and then we're growing food to distribute to a local food bank. Aiden's experience in sustainable agriculture and restorative land practices complemented Raquel's knowledge from learning how to compost at her home in the city. But this was before they had acquired land or were working together. So there I was farming my, my little front yard in the city, and I was like, wow, this is a lot of work. Like, when I was composting, pretty much just piles. I had tried like some of like the fancy rollers, but I wasn't ever making soil. So then I just started like I got like an old tree, the big wooden ones that the trees come in, mm-hmm. and just started throwing everything in there. And then I would turn it every once in a while, mm-hmm. then started gardening. Out. And then I just remember thinking, like, if I wait till I retire to get a ranch, like, I'm going to be too, like, I have to do it now while I have energy. So then pandemic boards start looking talk to a realtor, you know, I thought maybe we would like come up with like a two or a three year plan. And they were like, no, we could get you into something now. And like, it just like clicked really fast. So then I bought this three acres in Alpine, California. And as soon as I did that, my friend like Jessica over at Mother Tierra, because I had gone to some of her workshops, I was like connected to other people who were working on her farm or starting other little projects. One of the women that I had met through Jessica, Esmeralda Hummingbird, she, um, I think what had just been hired by CCGS to be like the regional coordinator. And she's like, hey, we got this grant. Like, are you interested in learning about how to compost more? So I was like, yeah, like I would totally be down. And so 
I filled out the application to do it. I had just moved in, so like I didn't have anything going or anything, and I got the grant. And when I started going to the meetings, everyone else was like community farms, you know, they were already well established. And I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't have anything. And I kept saying, like, are you sure like I'm supposed to be here? And so that's how we got started. So we really started from scratch, like from nothing. The three acres that Raquel bought is 45 minutes outside of San Diego in Alpine, California, and there's no public transportation. The need to make money to sustain each of them and their operation is inescapable. So the only reason why money feels like an issue to us is because it's like, well, how do we sustain this? Because like I'm a little bit further out from the city, like for her to come and help me, like there's gas and there's things involved. And so like we do need some money and we're at the point where we're trying to figure that out. As they work on ways to keep up financially, Raquel and the other leaders of Cuatro Vientos continue putting in a lot of work on the farm. And their dreams of what Cuatro Vientos can be are endless. Cuatro Vientos composting is part of it, but like we we eventually do want to have garden, you know, and be producing food. We plan to have animals. And also like where we are in Alpine, it's traditionally or historically known as like it's a very white town like and as a woman of color it feels a little hostile like driving around in our neighborhood sometimes but like as I've been living there you kind of look and there are other people there but I feel like we're a little bit invisible in terms of like kind of the culture or the reputation. Raquel and her team began looking for businesses to partner with in Alpine and in neighboring towns. And so part of our goal has been to outreach, to try to find businesses, community partners who are interested in connecting with the land, connecting with each other, and trying to change the narrative of what our community is about. So right now we have two community partners. Our first partner, she is in Descanso, which is like the other tiny little neighboring town to us. And they're a Mexican restaurant, Spanish-speaking So that's been really fun to get to know them. And then we have our second community partner, which is like a local cafe. Gideani is the site operator and has used her experience as an educator to help expand the reach of Cuatro Vientos. I got hired in January, but I didn't start kind of working till February. And another thing that we're doing with the land, other than composting, is we offer the space for the community to use for cultural ceremonies or cultural workshops, just in general, a place of gathering. So that was one of the things, since we couldn't start the composting aspect of the grant or the proposal, we focused on that and just tended to the land. My regular job is that I'm an educator and I teach high school students about habitat restoration. So that was one of the things that we were doing in the meantime is kind of identifying the non-native species, removing them. We weren't planting yet. We we're just on the removal part. And then again, bringing on the community to the land to offer us a space because it's, it's something that you can't necessarily, I mean, you can do it in the city, but it's a whole other experience and a whole other level being able to bring community out We're focusing on composting. We're also still trying to do community engagement by offering the space for groups, especially 
folks that are doing like indigenous ceremony community work. We were able to have a, a really good volunteer day where we actually not only non-native species, but we were able to plant a couple of native plants and then follow up with 10 mesquite trees. And also during the event, we were able to work on the compost, learn more. To Raquel, the land has always been about building community and returning to indigenous values where humans and the earth live in harmony. Well, I know that for me, just from the beginning, like it's been interesting because, you know, it's like I purchased this land, but the goal had for me is always like, how do I create community through land? So it's just weird that a person owns it. And so it's always been an interest of mine to learn more about like indigenous farming practices, reconnecting with the land. And so environmental justice from that standpoint is something that I think is one of my guiding principles of like, okay, native restoration right now is along with composting is like our, there are two big focuses right now, like learning about what belongs there. And then once we get those plants in there, well, what do we do with them? Because they thrive when it's in connection with humans. So how do we use them? How do we process them? How do we make sure that there's that reciprocity between us and them? And so just having a place where we get to learn these things from each other, like with, you know, whatever ancestral wisdom and knowledge we've been able to hold on to or reclaim has been really fun and important. And then also then bringing into our own like indigenous ceremonial practices is also like, it is environmental justice because like, it's not like we can say, hey, we want to have a teepee ceremony. Can we rent out the neighborhood park? Like you don't have, you can't do that kind of stuff there. So we actually have a place where we can have the ceremonies that we want to have without worrying about a governmental agency telling us what we can or can't do. We're also allowing nature to be itself too and, and, and rejuvenate and give back those nutrients to itself. When I listened to Raquel, Iriani, and Aiden's story, I realized that the beauty of small-scale farming and composting is that it allows them to be creative and innovative and to return to ancestral knowledge and wisdom that for generations has been forcefully removed from our education systems. Their vision and their dedication to making this space that is environmentally and culturally sustainable and just is what makes community composting unique. Thank you all for being on the show. Now, I'm going to pass it to my co-host, who has the best laugh and fabulous smile, Reggie Rucker. So one of the great things about being at a union workplace is I don't have to worry about being susceptible to the flattery. I've been known to hand out money for compliments. So thank you, Luke. So normally, we take this time during the break to ask for a donation, even if it's just a small one, $5, $10, Really, any amount goes a long way in helping us to do the important work of advocating for folks like Raquel, Iriani, and Aiden to sustain really vibrant local economies and communities and our democracy. And if you can make that donation, please head over to ilsr.org backslash donate and contribute whatever small amount you can. We are truly grateful. But these days, I like to focus on the one thing you can do that would cost you nothing. Right now, and I mean that, as soon as I'm done here, pause this episode, 
and share this or another favorite Building Local Power episode with a friend or family member and encourage them to listen. If you share this with one person you're close to and then they share it with one person, maybe they share it with one person, that's how change happens. That's how we can start changing the minds of citizens and voters and ultimately the policymakers who we need to create the proper policies so small-scale community composters have a fair shot again to thrive. And that's all we're advocating for is a fair chance instead of privileging these corporate giants and big moneyed investors. So that's our break. Pause this episode, share it with someone you're close to, encourage them to listen, and then come right back for the interview. Thanks so much. For the second half of this episode, we invited Jessica Toth, who is the executive director of the Solana Center, an environmental innovation nonprofit that works diligently to address environmental issues. Jessica, thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with us today. For the listeners who are new to building local power and want a bigger picture sense of what the composting industry looks like, we have a bunch of great resources over at ILSR.org. So we're going to put those into the show notes for this episode. We have earlier episodes of BLP that really gives a great look into composting, the benefits and the opportunities that exist in the sector. And also, we just released a community composter census. We're definitely going to add that to the show notes for this episode. It gives a great look into some of the challenges and also some of the opportunities that community composters are facing. And it really sort of gives the bigger, holistic data behind the story that you just heard with Raquel, Ariani, and Aiden as they get Cuatro Vientos off the ground. And that really leads to the conversation we want to have with you today, Jessica, to help us get a sense of the economics behind community composting and composting at large to get a better sense of the financial model that either makes this work or doesn't make this work as a profitable sector and how we think about getting more investment into the space and especially into the local community composting space. So again, Jessica, thank you for taking some time to talk with us about this today. The first thing I want to ask you about is, you know, when we hear the story of Raquel, Ariani, and Aiden and their composting business that they're getting underway. They talk so passionately about all the beautiful things that they want to create in that space. But of course, those things take money. It, it takes capital. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience, what you've seen in community composting, the composting space? And the discrepancies between small community composters and the type of funding backing that they get versus maybe those that are larger scale operations. Can you give us a sense of that financing landscape in the industry? Thank you for having me. And yes, I think there is a discrepancy, but I would start by saying actually that there's difficulty in funding any type of composting. And it's such a shame because composting is a really beautiful, incredible thing, not just at the when boots on the ground composting level, but it's from an environmental perspective, obviously nature's closed loop system. So commercial composters, they actually have a hard time making ends meet as well. In fact, I would say that from anecdotal conversations and experience, the sale of their finished product 
is not where they make their money. It's actually the tipping fees. And so the waste product has more value for commercial composters, and they look for grants and loans. But at the commercial composting level, you know, the state of California, we're very fortunate here where there's funding that's available from the state. We administer at Solana Center the Healthy Soils Program, which provides grants. But essentially, it's it's widely recognized that community composting is a labor, you know, of passion. Even at the residential level, you have local jurisdictions and local cities that are subsidizing compost bins. So every part of the process, commercial, community. And community scale also, in my mind, includes what I call on-farm. We teach an on-farm composting course. It's a multi-week course. But the uptake of that is relatively small. In other words, there's interest in the course, but when the rubber meets the road, it's difficult for farmers to make a pencil out. For manure management, sometimes that is an option that makes economic sense. But I think that's really the crux of it, is that the economics aren't there. And if I were to step back to the really big picture, and only speaking for my region, but the tipping fee for waste to our landfill, so tipping fee being the cost to discard one ton of material in our landfill, is on the order of $40 per ton. And the cost to compost a ton of food waste is on the order of $90. So how do you square that? or close that loop when it's more than twice as expensive to do the right thing and to compost material when you could put it in the landfill. So that permeates every part of life. If you think of you know every part of business, I suppose, if you think of a mom and pop restaurant within margins who want to do the right thing, how do you incentivize them to put their food waste and get a larger bin to have their material go to composting when it's more expensive than the gray bin. We have color-coded bins here in California. but So that's the crux of the problem really is the economics in my view. You really have to be passionate about and feel strongly that this is the right way to go. Now there are definitely our commercial composters out there who are making a business of it. You know, contamination is an enormous issue for them that you don't necessarily have at the community composting level because those who are discarding their organic material are very motivated to keep the waste stream clean. At every level, there are issues that don't pencil out well from a financial point of view. So hearing that, then Jessica, I think the question that arises for me is, we've been doing a little bit of research and have started to see private equity making their way into this space seeing that there's profit to be made. Is that something that you've seen, experienced? And if it is, what do you think might be accounting for that as you describe sort of it being just a tough economic model to begin with? That's a very good question. Quite a few years ago, pre-pandemic, I had a discussion with a private equity investment firm. They were investing heavily in anaerobic digestion across the country. And I tried to make the case with them to consider at its simplest level, it's a process that takes those nutrients. So when you harvest produce from the land, it pulls the minerals and nutrients along with it. And so 
that's why we want to compost it and put it back on the soil because of the minerals and nutrients. But another alternative is to actually extract that for renewable natural gas. And that's what anaerobic digestion does. It extracts the value. It leaves about 90% of the solids as a digestate, but it's mostly denuded. So it's a tidy process. And that was one of the things that I heard from investors or this investor that I talked to at this big firm. Uh, it's, it's really almost literally in a box <laughs> and it's very, very tidy and it creates renewable natural gas instead of finished compost. The investment dollars that were going to anaerobic digestion, I mean, their priority was anaerobic digestion was number one, biogas number two, and composting number three. And the other thing to consider with that is that when I did an analysis using the EPA's WARM model, which just looks at what the carbon footprint is of these different solutions, was three times greater, more benefit from the greenhouse gas savings when you compost rather than anaerobic digestion. So from an environmental perspective, I would rather see compost. But having said that, there is more investment. Generate Capital recently purchased a $200 million purchase of Atlas Organics in South Carolina, which is a, a very big deal. And so there is a lot more attention to composting, which was yeah, you know, what you started the discussion with. And I think there's an amazing change in understanding that organic waste and very specifically food waste is an issue. I've seen that happen over my time focusing on this issue. I read a, a study that said three years ago, about a third of the U.S. population understood that food waste has an environmental impact, and now it's two-thirds. So it's really in, in just three years. People have a much greater understanding that food waste is both an environmental issue and a social issue. In fact, I would say my neighbors have now heard the term food insecurity when probably that wasn't true just a couple of years ago. And so I think there's a greater spotlight. And to me, that's what is accounting for more funding in that space. As you may know, in California, there's legislation that prevents organic material from going to landfill. And along with that has been greater investment from the state and a requirement that no organic material can go to landfill, which means solutions with investment dollars are having to follow that regulation. So that's what I account for. I've always been a believer that you want to encourage people to, to do the best that they can. And, and my tactic had been really to one compost bin at a time sort of thing. But until this legislation passed a couple years ago, now that was really the kick in the seat of the pants to encourage infrastructure change at, at the local regional, and the state level. And I'll just wrap it up by that part of the question by saying, in our region, we still only have the ability to manage 12% of all the food waste we generate and 33% of all the organic material. So there's less restrictions on landscaping materials. So 33%. So that means the rest of it, and when I say manage it, that's through composting, anaerobic digestion, the rest of it's got to go somewhere. And so the reality is we really need a mix of solutions. We need those community composters. We need people who are managing their own organic 
material on their own site through, you know, residential composting as well. Jessica, when you say in our region, do you mean in California or specifically in San Diego? I mean the specifics to the San Diego region. So we have 3.3 million people in the county region. And we were behind the times for some reason. And I, I know some of those reasons, but we had less processing capabilities in our area than the, any of the five most populous areas in the state of California. So LA, Fresno, Bay Area, they were all ahead of us in terms of managing organic waste. And that was for historical reasons. You mentioned earlier that the state of California making it a priority to figure out solutions to food waste has been helpful to bringing more investment to the sector um, because, you know, investors know at that point that this is a commitment that the state has made to invest in, in these outcomes and in these solutions. And so they know that there's money to be made from it. Are there other similar solutions? How are you thinking about ways to bring more money into the sector so that all solutions have a chance to thrive from, you know, the community composters to the commercial solutions? I don't know if I have an answer for that, but I'll describe a project that we undertook in 2014-15. And that was, we identified a business, a restaurant. It's a uh, fast food chain. It was opening its first location in San Diego area. And they contacted us and said, well, where are we supposed to take our food waste? Because anywhere else that they have been in California, is a big, big, big chain. Anywhere else, they have had to send their food waste in a separate area. And we, at that time, did not have, um, it, it was all going to landfill, 2014. And so we made an arrangement with a agricultural site that was less than a mile away, that was 67 acres, severely depleted soil. And they had been purchasing finished compost from 25 miles away. So we arranged with the hauler who was interested to see how this would work. And they transported weekly the material from that fast food restaurant up to the agricultural site where it was composted. We ran the project for six months. The finished compost was five times more nutrient rich than what they had been importing in. I mean, it was such a win-win-win. The restaurant was saving $400 a month on the hauling fees. From my perspective as an environmentalist, it was no longer going to landfill. But the local ordinances did not allow you to compost material that was generated off-site. We knew that, so we did it under the radar for six months. We brought in the elected officials, and they're like, wow, it doesn't smell. None of the neighbors have been complaining. It was incredible. But you must stop, you know, restaurant, you must continue going back to sending the food waste to the landfill. And farm, you must only create compost from the material that you're generating on site. Eight years later, this past September, they passed an ordinance to allow you to compost material that's been brought in from off site throughout the county. 
So that was an incredible success. Uh, we were actually recognized at the time in 2015 with the state's highest environmental honor for putting a spotlight on the issue of food waste. But it still didn't do anything. I mean, it was eight years. <laughs> and, and there were other people who were aware of the issue. So it wasn't, uh, it, but we demonstrated the importance of it and the potential of it. I'm really not answering your question, but except to say that we recognize that all these solutions are necessary. And in the San Diego area, we're very unique. We have year-round growing seasons. If you know anything about San Diego, it's pretty temperate year-round. And we have the largest number of farms, the largest number of organic farms of any county in the United States which means that they're relatively small. And so in close proximity, you have commercial, residential, and agricultural sites. And that's why in downtown, we had 67-acre farm right within a mile of a fast food restaurant. And so these kinds of closed-loop systems, it's ideal for it. And so really back to the big issue of how are we going to manage all of the organic waste and the food waste that we're generating? We have to be creative and come up with these kind of solutions. We have to look for the regulations to be eased so that these types of arrangements can happen. Jessica, I think the one last thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, going back to the story of Cuatro Vientos and, and deep-rooted belief and passion in finding better ways to take care of the land that we occupy. What do you tell a, a group of, sort of community-minded, civic-minded folks like them who, you know, hear this story about it taking eight years to make progress on something? How do you, I don't know, keep them energized, keep them hopeful that this is not only important, but possible and sustainable and that there are sort of like financial solutions that are within reach like you know is, yeah is, is there is there any hope that you can provide them well i think along those lines the state legislation just as an example requires that each jurisdiction must spur the market for the finished goods so the the, the byproducts so they must purchase a certain amount of finished compost and or the renewable natural gas as part of the regulations. And so what we're seeing is that it really is encouraging the market. I think I started by saying that even with the commercial composters, they make their money off of taking the waste more than they make it from the sale of the finished product. So if there's not a market for the finished product and there's no real appreciation or value in it, that's a problem. But I do think that that, that is changing. And so beyond the fact that it is such an incredible process to, to, to see and be part of, and uh, I have staff who say that there's the soil releases endorphins that, you know, create a happy <laughs> life. Besides that, I, I think that obviously what they're doing at Cuatro Vientos is really important to the community, and I, I hope it will be recognized. I do think that there's change that we're seeing happen. I am optimistic, but it does take time and real persistence. Absolutely. Yeah, change really does take time, and that really is an inspirational story. After all, it did take eight years, but it finally came to fruition. So 
It's great to hear. So Jessica, we're going to end this episode by asking you about a book that has impacted your work in environmental sustainability or just your life and your career. That is such an open-ended question. <laughs> Specific to composting, I have to say I asked staff who are much more hands-on with the composting, and they said really the best source for content on composting is to look at the U.S. Composting Council's website. They said in general that the content is evolving enough that material is available on the website. Thank you so much, Jessica. This was really enlightening and really helpful in helping us understand the challenges that the sector faces and making it possible to be someone's livelihood and, and, and business. So you know, this was incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for this thoughtful conversation and for joining us on the show today. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That is ilsr.org. If you like this podcast, Remember, please share with your family, your friends, the random people that follow you on social media because you're such a great follow. And remember, all of your reviews and likes on your streaming platform helps this podcast reach more people. And your donations help to keep this podcast going and supports the research and resources that we make available on our website for free. We welcome and appreciate it all so much. This show is produced by Luke Gannon and me, Reggie Rucker. This podcast is edited by Drew Birschbach and Luke Gannon. Our theme music for the season is composed by Andrew Frank. Thank you for listening to Building Local Power.